Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of August 8th, 2023. For those of you following along on YouTube, you'll notice a new intro, new graphics, new theme music. So congrats to Rocky. Looks great. Super fantastic. Always nice for a change once in a while. Uh, what, what prompted the uh, change? Uh, well, just just to do something different, I I just thought I my last logo I thought was was a little bit perhaps uh, I, I don't know maybe egocentric. It had my image with my glasses and everything, and I I actually got some advice from uh, some other YouTubers. Uh, one particular one does uh, web design, and he thought he just gave me some advice, and he basically live on on ecam live he actually redesigned my logo for me and so uh and so yeah it was nice and then he sent me all the uh the designs and i just thought i'd use them and uh you know i, I spiced yours up too on your instructions so i don't know something different you know rock the boat a little bit yeah always good to do a, a little refresh uh so as far as the dc week everybody pretty strong week uh overall the night terrors event still a little inconsistent maybe that spine series is kind of standing uh, head and shoulders above the rest of the stuff, which can be really wildly inconsistent from issue to issue. But the non-Night Terror stuff I thought was really solid this week, and I'm excited to talk about some of those. What do you think overall, Rocky? Uh, I thought overall Night Terrors was sort of blasé, sort of by the numbers. It doesn't really surprise us. Uh, and uh, again, we, we there are some Night Terror stories that we don't mind. But uh, for the most part, I like the non-Night Terrors events that just like yourself and particularly the Superman annual, which we'll get into and danger street. And thank God for the other, other comic books that aren't tied to necessarily uh, directly into night terrors, because otherwise this would have been kind of a blase week. Yeah. It reminds me of convergence back in the day when DC moved from the East coast to the West coast, right? If you weren't into convergence, it was like too bad. That's all there was. Uh, and a few vertigo titles. So at least we're getting some other sort of, sort of mainstream tiles. You know, we have uh, tales of teen Titans here, so, yeah, we'll get into that. One thing's interesting, you specifically mentioned Superman Annual and Danger Street. So they have something in common that I thought was, I don't know if it, it's a negative, maybe more of a nitpick, that just something that stood out to me. Uh, but yet, those are probably the two books that I enjoyed the most. Um, but I don't know. We'll see at the end if I pick either one of those for my uh, book of the week. But let's go ahead and dive into Night Terrors number three. This is written by uh, Joshua Williamson. Art from three artists, which, you know, I always would prefer there to be one artist, but overall the art's pretty solid. It's uh, Giuseppe Camincoli, Stefano Nessi, and Casper Wingard, and then colors from Frank Martin and Wingard, letters by Troy Petrie. So um, what I'm really enjoying here is the characterization of Dead Man in the hands of, of Joshua Williamson, right? Um, Dead Man's a character I've always really enjoyed, the character of Boston Brand, his sort of tragic origin and what have you. Uh, I know he was a favorite of Neil Adams as well, and Adams did a lot of work at DC with them, and artistically, there may be nobody I, I enjoy more uh, drawing Dead Man than Neil Adams. However, Adams sometimes his his scripting and his pacing suffered a little bit. Um, but even great writers like Scott Snyder, that can be the case, right? Uh, and I think what happens is they have these ideas uh, that are so big, and it's hard to boil them down and get them into a 22 or 28 page comic, whatever uh, it might be, you're limited on the real estate. You have these big ideas. The pacing can come across as choppy because there's just not enough room to explain everything that they, it makes sense to them because they have the idea in their head, but that's not always the case. Um, so yeah, Neil Adams, you know, rest in peace and all respect, but yeah, he wasn't always the best writer um, of uh, dead man. So that being said, 
I love what Williamson is doing. I love the voice he gives Boston Brand. I would love uh, a dead man ongoing with Joshua Williamson. The other thing that I noticed, uh, and I'm not sure why it didn't occur to me before, but this is such a dead man centric series, right? He's the main guy. He's the one driving the event. He's the main protagonist. And yet it seems in a little bit in a way like DC editorial pulled a switcheroo, right? Like it's Batman on the covers. It's, it's not dead man. When you even open the book and flip through and read it, it's Batman. We know dead man is possessing Batman, but it's almost like, Hey, Batman sells a lot. We can do a lot of Batman covers. If anybody looks at it at a glance, it looks like it's a Batman driven event when really Batman's personality is, has been pretty much a non-existent, right? Uh, at least in the spine series, uh, it's been driven by dead man. He's the one that's, that's yeah. really the guy who's doing everything. So I find that interesting as well. Um, so in this issue, we see Damien Wayne and Dead Man kind of comparing notes. They're looking for that Nightmare Stone. If it was in the waking world, seems like the Sleepless Nights would have found it. If it was in the Nightmare Realm, it seems like Insomnia would, would have found it. So they realize in talking to Wesley Dodds and, and these two other characters comparing notes, saying, hey, maybe it's in this in-between realm, this limbo place that's between waking and sleeping. Dead Man calls it the hollow. And Wesley Dodds, who, uh, you know, as Sandman had all these different sort of sleep gases, put you in a coma, can just knock you out for a few seconds, what have you. He has one that specifically will send people to the hollow. So that's what he does. He sends um, Dead Man in Batman's body and Damian Wayne to the hollow. What's great about it, if you're watching on YouTube, it's there on the screen. They decide when Dead Man is in the hollow, he's not going to look like Dead Man. He's not going to look like Batman. He's going to look like this hybrid between the two. So it's Batman's costume, but it's red like Dead Man's. And instead of the bat symbol, it's a D for Dead Man. And he's got the cape and everything, but he's got the giant pointed collar that Dead Man usually has that I just love. I love the way Dead Man's costume looks. It's so fantastic. Um, so that's just a really cool uh, artistic choice that they made, and I, I really uh, enjoyed that. Good. So they do find the Nightmare Stone. What's interesting is when they come back, has the Nightmare Stone taken over Dead Man? Is Dead Man still in charge? Because he says, you know, when they get back and he tells Wesley Dodds, we found the Nightmare Stone. We can use it to defeat uh, insomnia, and then you know all my dreams can come true. It seemed like something kind of strange, kind of out of character for Dead Man to say. But the other thing that makes you wonder if this Nightmare Stone isn't the one actually calling the shots is when he says that, when he says, and then my dreams will come true, it's a close-up on Batman's face, Batman possessed by Dead Man, and his eyes have been replaced by little glowing um, images of the Nightmare Stone. So clearly something going on here. Um uh, we don't really know why uh, the insomnia character even wants the nightmare stone. I don't know if that's ever been um, made clear, but we did get some more background into the insomnia character. We learned in this issue that something happened between him and the justice league. You know, we see him in some therapy session in Arkham tower. The guy that's running the session says something like uh, you need to be able to get some rest and, and, you know, uh, kind of get over the trauma and what have you. Let's talk it out. Uh, because this guy hasn't been sleeping. He says every time he closes his eyes, every time he goes to sleep, he has nightmares of this event, whatever it was that happened. Uh, so when this guy says, yeah, you need to kind of get over it and get some rest and, and you know, let your body kind of recover and forgive the justice. Maybe someday you'll be able to forgive the Justice League. The guy freaks out, smashes a coffee pot over his head uh, and then takes one of the shards from the glass from the broken coffee pot uses to cut off his eyelids, which is really gruesome. And that's why whenever we see insomnia, he's got those scars around his eyes. 
Uh, if you're wondering, that's why. Because this guy doesn't even want to be able to close his eyes because every time he closes his eyes, he sees this trauma. So I'm guessing if some world-ending event, some alien invasion, something that the Justice League was fighting and maybe his wife and kids got killed or something along those lines, kind of tropey. Um, but, you know, it does make sense why this guy has these delusions, right? Uh, if he's sleep deprived, that can cause all kinds of psychological problems. Thinks he's a god. He's really just this guy. Has some sort of dream um, ability to travel through dreams, some sort of power to do with dreams. So uh, more context added in Insomnia. I still don't have the whole story, but setting up for uh, what's to come. And, and again, I'm really enjoying the Spine series. It's all you need. All these ancillary series, I get it. Hey, it's a big event go buy all these other series. You really don't need them. You know, if you want to go buy them, you want to read them, that's fine, whatever. But everything that's happening that you need to know is happening in this main series. And it, it's really borne out when we see so many of the other two-part series. They end, but they don't really end, right? They end, and then they say, to be continued in Night Terrors. Or, you know, it's like we didn't really even get the end of a lot of those stories. Um, and last thing I'll mention before uh, I let Rocky give his thoughts on this issue is there is a, a Hulk 340, that real famous uh, Todd McFarlane cover where Hulk is being reflected in Wolverine's claws. There's uh, an homage to that um, from, I'm not sure who the artist is that did it. Um, it might be Christian Doucet, but usually when they do that, uh, it'll yeah. say after McFarlane, it'll and I'll call it out. It, it, it didn't. I, I Christian Doucet. It, it looks yeah, like Doucet, Yeah, Rex Locus. Um, but, but regardless, it's just, it's, I mean, that is a very homaged cover. It might be starting to catch Spider-Man 300 as the most homaged cover ever. Um, but, it, I mean, it's still really cool. Like, I mean, the reason a cover gets the layout, and the way a cover looks gets copied over and over and over is because it's so good, right? And this is clearly the case here. So, uh, And I, the other thing I'll notice about it is even the, the Night Terrors logo is that kind of brick you know, bricked up logo that Incredible Hulk had at the time. So yeah, uh, same colors and everything with the red and the yellow. So yeah, overall a pretty strong issue for Night Terrors number three. What do you think, Rocky? Yeah. Well, for that cover, uh, the Night Terrors cover, uh, imitation is, I guess, the, the greatest form of flattery. And uh, Todd McFarlane has definitely been flattered quite a bit in the last uh, few a well, few decades, but uh, yeah, I uh, speculator alert as well. This is the first appearance to my knowledge of the House of Horrors. And uh, we have the House of Mystery and we have the House of Secrets. Well, we have the House of Horrors that shows up within the hollow. And um, it would appear that uh, this, this House of Horrors is within the hollow. And within the House of Horrors is where Damien and Dead Man go, where they discover uh, the Nightmare Stone. And it's, it's interesting that, uh, that, that Boston brand, that Joshua Williamson is definitely focusing, as you said, Jace, he's focusing a lot on Boston brand, on Dead Man. And, and Boston, Brad, Boston brand indicates one of, his, one of his ongoing, one of his deepest, darkest secrets was that he, in fact, suffered quite painfully before he died. Apparently, he never told anybody that before, that you know he always told people that he died instantly when he fell from the trapeze when he was murdered. But in fact, he didn't. He felt the gunshot. He felt himself bleed out. He felt his body hit the, hit the ground. And as part of sort of like the ritual to obtain the Nightmare Stone, he literally had to 
tear his own body apart. So it was, it was actually quite disgusting and quite horrifying. And yet Boston Brand did that. And then they managed to uh, they managed to get uh, as you as you said dead dead man in the form of Batman managed to get the Nightmare Stone. Another thing that you alluded to uh, earlier was just how interesting this Batman is when he wasn't when he isn't really Batman. And I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head here because I kind of like this because normally you. I'm kind of glad this Batman is acting out of character. He should be. He's dead man. But he's a little bit more interesting. He's, he's a little bit more unpredictable. He's not as competent. He's, a, he, he's got a little bit more of a sense of humor. And Damien is even frustrated with him a little bit. You know, when he, he, he could tell that when Damien first arrived on the scene with dead man and, and sad man, he could tell right away that Batman, that his father wasn't himself. And so he knew his father was possessed. And uh, Damien did explain that Damien apparently has been meditating for, for like days now, for the last three days days because he's using every meditation technique that he can just to prevent himself from falling asleep. So Damien is really a sort of a wide-eyed wonder uh, wonder himself. And so there's there's explanation for everything. Compelling mystery, what it what what the hell happened between insomnia and the GLA that he absolutely that this this origin of the of insomnia, he was a patient at Arkham by the name of Christopher. What the hell did the Justice League do to him that he wants, that he will refuse to forgive them? We don't know. You know that he's insane if he cuts off his own eyelids. Uh, so, you know, it's intriguing. It's intriguing. I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where this goes. I think we only got one issue left in Night's End, issue four. Uh, so it, it, this is probably going to have to wrap up kind of quickly, but... Uh, but that's all right, I guess. No question that if you're just coming into Night's, uh, Night Terrors, you don't need to read any of the tie-ins. You really just need to read the series proper, like you said. And that's probably a good thing and probably a good short and sweeter story that gets to the point. And you get some good characterization of a character that we don't see much of anymore, and that's Dead Man. But yeah, not bad. Yeah, again, I'd love to see uh, Williamson do a Dead Man ongoing. I, I mean, the thing, as much as I love Dead Man, the thing about him, though, is he can be kind of one note, right? He just has one thing. He can possess bodies, and those bodies will have you know, greater reflexes and strength and what have you, but they're still limited. Um, Cause you know, we, we joked about it earlier in the series when he possessed Batman's body. He's like, man, Batman's really doing something right. This is the fittest body that I've ever been in. So yeah, I mean, there, it is limited in what you can do. Uh, it's kind of a challenging character to write. I mean, how many times can you have them take over somebody's body and solve a murder, you know, or what have you. So uh, anyway, let's move on. The first of the night terrors tie-ins this week, uh, Night Terror Shazam number two. It's from writer Mark Wade, Roger Cruz on pencils, Wellington Diaz on inks, Arif Prianto does the colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Really enjoy the Roger Cruz art. Um, yeah, just I love his Mary Marvel. She looks youthful, but she looks powerful. Great storytelling. I mentioned this when we talked about the first issue. The one, the one thing is Billy Batson in this black costume. He just looks like Black Adam for the most part. Um, old school Black Adam when uh, Black Adam had a cape. Uh, recent years he hasn't had a cape um, so that's interesting I enjoyed what Mark Wade is doing here uh, we've mentioned this before when it comes to these nightmare uh, nightmare terrors uh, or night terrors tie-ins the best ones are the ones that are still moving their own story forward that are still being additive and adding context to the story they're telling in the regular series and that's certainly the case here uh, because we see Mary Marvel, we see some uh, of the other Shazam family. As much as DC's gone back and forth a little bit recently with saying, no, it's only Billy that has powers, and then no, it's only Mary uh, Marvel that has powers, and the rest of them did. Um, 
again, adding context by Mark Wade showing kind of what the status quo is with these characters in terms of their relationship, in terms of it being a family. As much as I, when Jeff Johns did it, I, I was unsure about how I felt about it because I think like focus on Billy Batson, focus on Shazam. He's not, he doesn't get enough credit or enough screen time as it is. Now you're going to add in all these other characters. That's why that was my initial thought, but it really works, you know, with Eugene and Pedro and um, Freddie Darla. and Darla, yeah. Mary, it, it just, it really, really works as uh, as a group. And I love the fact that they, they all have pretty much the same costume, but just different colors. Um, again, different body types. It, it just, it really works. And so Wade is showing not only how it works in terms of functioning as, as heroes, but just as functioning as, as a family, as a family, even in their sort of civilian uh, guises, if you will, their civilian identities, even so much as to uh, show their parents here, to show Mary's parents, her father, her adopted father, stepfather, whatever you want to call it, foster father, and moves into the dream that her, her nightmare that her mother is having because she says, uh, I haven't seen any problem so ugly that you and Rosa can't handle it together. So again, it's it's Wade understanding these characters, showing that he understands the characters, and it doesn't really move the Night Terror story forward really in any way, shape, or form, other than to show that these kids can overcome their nightmares by leaning into their familial relationships and knowing that they can trust each other. But in terms of anything Nightmare Stone, anything insomnia related, yeah, it's again, it, it's not necessary. You know, I just assume have let Mark Wade just keep telling his Shazam stories because he's doing a fantastic job. He understands these characters really, really well. Uh, but again, it gave a chance for him to flex his muscles and, and really lean in to the relationships and also a chance for Roger Cruz to give us some great art. So yeah, overall, I thought it was a pretty strong issue. What'd you think? It was, It I think character-wise, it was a decent enough issue. It, I mean, it was, I mean, not, I don't think it's absolutely necessary to read. I didn't find it, I did find it um, kind of blah, like boring. Uh, she just she's traveling in all her her friends' dreams, all the orphans, like I said, Darla, Eugene, Pedro, all of them. She just went into their dreams and then said Shazam, and I I felt it was a little bit of a cheat. I didn't find that Darla, Eugene, or Pedro, or even Mary Marvel, overcame their fears. I mean, uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to overcome a nightmare and your fears if you can change into Shazam, isn't it? I mean, give, give me Shazam-like powers. I can overcome any nightmare. Give me the wisdom of Minerva. I can do, pretty much do anything. It was kind of a cheat. You're, you know, so there was no personal victory, I thought, for Darla, Eugene, or Pedro in their human form. They needed to become superheroes. They needed to become the better version of themselves uh, as opposed to their normal selves to overcome their fears. Uh, now, that's me being critical, but I mean, I realize that this is only, <laughs> this is only the second issue. Uh, for what it was, it was, it was okay. But one question I have is, I know, I know it's in a dream. I know it's a nightmare. But Mary has gets her powers from the Amazon goddesses now, right? So can Mary Marvel share her Shazam? Is it Mary Marvel that shared her Shazam powers with Darla, Eugene, and Pedro? I thought I thought they got their Shazam powers from from Billy, Billy Batson. But now can Mary Marvel share her Amazonian Shazam powers? I think Wade's ignoring that. Yeah, which I I don't blame him. That that's probably should be ignored. Uh, like well, it. I don't think it is being ignored, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. I just, I mean, that's a huge, that was a huge shift in Mary Marvel's mythology, making her into her own, you know, her own sort of 
character with her own agency and her own power. So, mistake. Oh, you said. I thought you said mistake. You said shift. Huge shift. Got it. Yeah, huge shift in her uh, mythology. But in any event, no, it, it was all right. It was okay, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And the art was and the art was uh, really good as well. So. You know, it was pretty good. I particularly love the double page spread where uh, Billy, dressed as in a as, as Black Adam, smashes uh, Mary Marvel, and she she seems to go through different. Uh, she goes. She seems to travel through different uh, states of sleep. I think before she uh, or different dreams or different nightmares. It's very, visually, it's it's just very well done. Before she finally is traumatized, and ultimately the. Uh, the, the rest of the Marvel family shows up and she wakes up and she discovers that she discovers that insomnia, she doesn't know it's insomnia, but in that the insomnia character as, as the captain, the, the dark captain shows up and it's still around. This is once again, continued into night's end. So all in all, pretty good. Mark, Mark Wade is always good. He was, he was, he's like that at DC in the past and at Marvel too. He was always good at tying into events. Yeah. Guy's super talented. No doubt. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Night Terror's Robin number two, written by Kenny Porter. Miguel Mendoca handles the art. Adriana Lucas on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, yeah, give us your thoughts on this one. I'm very curious. I I didn't really. Uh, this is one of my least favorite ones. Uh, and uh, but full disclosure, I've said this before. I think it's worth mentioning that my I I do have a bias. I'm not I'm not a Tim Drake's my least favorite Robin. And uh, that remains so. Uh, no offense to the character, it just is. Uh, the covers here are fantastic. The cover A's, I mean, the covers are really good. Uh, I like the fact that Jason Todd is with Tim Drake, Robin, in, in these in, in these issues. And if you, this is actually a pretty good, uh, Kenny Porter, uh, who does the writing, uh, does a pretty good job. Uh, I think if, if you don't know much about the relationship between Tim Drake and, and and Jason Todd. This will this will really get you, get you what your appetite and it'll it'll basically give you the Coles Notes version of what their insecurities are, of what they have to overcome, and and so it's really good that way. The art is uh, is really good. The art really stood out for me. Um, Miguel Mendoca on the art, Adriana Lucas on the colors, just really really good. Uh, it's just you know it, it's just more of the same that that sort of. Again, I, I say again for Night Terrors, for brand new readers who just want to come in and get their feet wet on a DC event, this is perfect. This tells you, gives you everything you need to know about Tim Drake, really, uh, about his insecurities, about uh, Jason Todd's hang-ups, etc., and how they support each other, and the assumptions that they make about each other's characters that were unfounded, etc., etc. For me, it just feels something that we been here and we've done that before uh but i do want to give kenny porter some credit he's a one of, he's one of the newer writers at dc he's uh he's paid his due he's he's got his foot wet he he shows that he understands these characters he scripts it very well the dialogue's very well done uh, whether it's uh scripting a conversation between uh uh, Tim Drake's uh, dead father and himself, or J- Jason Dodd dealing with his hang hangups as being the the worst Robin, and just the way that they work together to ultimately uh, come out of their dream and uh, work together at the end to ultimately uh, to ultimately wake up out of their dream where Jason Todd, where they they wake up where they were at the beginning in issue one of Night Terror's Robin number one, where Jason Todd was reluctant to ask Tim Drake for help, but he continues to ask for help at the end of this with some crime that's taken place on the docks and Tim Drake's on his way and, and that's how it ends. So it's, you know, these are two 
members of the Bat family that have successfully overcome their their nightmares. And uh, remember that Tim Drake was one of the only persons who, through detective work was able to deduce that they were in a nightmare through deduction, uh, and so showing his detective skills. And you know, I if if you're a fan of the first one, you're going to be a fan of this one. So, uh, you know, again, it's well written, it's well done. I just you know, for me, it just. Uh, I've, I've read this story before, but I, I, I feel compelled to give credit to Kenny Porter. He did a really good job scripting it, and the art's really fantastic. What about yourself? Yeah, I kind of feel exactly the same way. Uh, I think I enjoyed it a little more than you. Uh, the strength of this issue is 100%. All credit to Kenny Porter and Miguel Mendoca, uh, and, and, and the, the colors by Prianto as well. Um, this book is all about the relationship between Jason Todd and Tim Drake. Uh, whether you know them well or not, you're going to get something out of this issue. I think the strength of this issue and and the legacy, if you will, of this issue, not, not that you know it's some key issue that's going to be worth a ton of money or whatever, but there's this is such a great reminder and such a great story from Kenny Porter and everything is laid out so easily for writers to go back and reference this in the future. Like if you want to explore this relationship or if you just want to have these two characters in the same book interacting with each other, this should be like a must read. Like, okay, if you're going to work on these two characters, go read this issue that Kenny Porter did. This is the way these characters relate to each other. They have something in common and they were both Robins. They both have their insecurities. They both have their hangups. The way they interact with Bruce, the way Bruce sees them is so different, but you're so alike in so many ways. Uh, just the strength of that from Kenny Porter is just the best I've ever seen anyone handle these two characters in relation to each other. It's amazing. The line work is great. The visual storytelling from Miguel is fantastic. So I can't say enough good things about this book. Does it break new ground? Not necessarily, but I think it it's giving context to these characters in a way that maybe hasn't been spelled out in such a easy easy to digest way before uh and i you know i say that easy to digest way well if it was easy then wouldn't everybody do it all the time well you know maybe it's just a not necessarily a lack or just the balance between getting emotional storytelling impactful storytelling exploring relationships and having to make a great comic story it's not always the easiest thing to do um and this is kind of a master class in, in the way to do it so i was really impressed with this um, but again, you know, if, if we want to nitpick here, it's like, do you need to read this to understand what's going on in the night terrorist event? No, you don't. <laughs> you don't at all. This is more, uh, like I said, like a character study of who these characters are, um, and why they are the way they are much more so than it's any sort of, um, well, Hey, we want, uh, this, this issue to tie into night terrors and, and really be impactful. It's, it's just not that. Um, but it is such a fantastic use of these two characters and their relationship and the things they have in common and, and what have you. So I thought uh, it was really impressive. Probably my favorite night terrors book of the week, um, actually. So moving on next, we have uh, night terrors, green lantern number two. This is written by Jeremy Adams. Art is by Eduardo Penseca. Jordi Tarragona and Julio Ferreira with colors by Luis Guerrero and letters by Dave Sharp. Then we have the uh, Sinestro backup that's written by Alex Segura, art by Mario Fox Foquillo. Um, 
And then Prasso Rao Pressy does the colors with Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, so we're big fans of Jeremy Adams. What do you think of his uh, well, Flash issue or a Green Lantern? Uh, right? <laughs> well, he did exactly what he said. He what he hinted to uh, Trevor and I uh, back when he was in Calgary Expo, and because he expressed shock that that as if any any character who purports to give nightmares is going to scare Hal Jordan. And you can absolutely, you can see, uh, I can say it more bluntly now because we're reviewing it and we do spoilers. I mean, Hal Jordan literally, he, he makes insomnia his bitch. <laughs> I mean, insomnia is afraid of Hal Jordan by the end of this issue. I mean, insomnia actually actually yells at Hal Jordan, who's chasing him by the end of this issue saying, who are you? What are you? I mean, I mean, Insomnia throws everything at him and Hal just sort of like, he literally smirks and Insomnia says, why are you smirking? I mean, he throws everything at him from his family, nightmares of his family, the death of his father to, to parallax to all the stuff you could imagine if you're familiar with Green Lantern lore and none of it, I mean, none of it phases him at all. I mean, he actually has fun with it. Hal Jordan is having fun with this. And, and he starts off the issue by telling him, I mean, he, by, by stating the old acronym for fear in some self-help circles that he apparently he got the advice from, uh, from uh, Killebach saying um, fear stands for false evidence appearing real. Well, I mean, of, of all the things that a Green Lantern knows, that's one thing a Green Lantern knows. And, you know, just and the, the art here is just fantastic Eduardo Panseca his, his art is just uh, is just fantastic whether whether it's showing a, a parallax or the, uh, the the fear entity of parallax and the uh, well and that, that actually really embodies that he spends most of the time fighting parallax uh, but there's also like the action scenes as between Hal Jordan and parallax this is this is one long action scene in Green Lantern Hal Jordan is just absolutely on fire here, kicking his butt. And, um, he knows he's in a dream. He knows what he has to do to get out of it. He's got, he, he doesn't, he could tell everything he's, he's, there's nothing that scares him. And you could, uh, in my view, you can kind of see <laughs> that the fun that Jeremy Adams was having saying, really, I just got on this title and you think I'm going to let somebody scare Hal Jordan, that the, the master of willpower, come on, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I love the fact, and this is sort of symbolized by near the end, he, he literally creates sort of like a carnival uh, where you, where you take the hammer and you, 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 you slam it down and you try to get the, uh, try to ring the bell at the top of the, uh, the, that, the, the way scale. And, you know, he just, you know, he makes the whole thing as kind of a joke to him. And, and in fact, it reminded me a little bit of, uh, uh, almost like a, almost a little bit like, um, um, what is it? Uh, Rick and Morty, <laughs> the expression on Insomnia's face as he sees, as he sees that, uh, Hal Jordan is behind him is, uh, well, Insomnia as in the body of Parallax or in the form of Parallax. I think it was just hilarious. I had a lot of fun with this issue, uh, more so because I know that, uh, you know, I mean, we all know that Jeremy Adams loves Green Lantern. He's having fun writing it. And no more is that clear when you read this issue. It, it, it was a lot of fun. So how'd you enjoy it? It was a little over the top for me. Uh, it was fun, no doubt. Uh, and it, it, I, I got a laugh out of seeing the table sort of turned on Insomnia, right? He's the one that's supposed to be scaring Hal. Hal just cranks it up to 11 and has Insomnia running for his life multiple times. Uh, but yeah, at times it did feel a little over the top, almost so that 
felt a little out of character for Hal, but I sort of chalked that up to, well, Hal knows it's a dream. Um, he knows it's not real. So if he wants to ham it up a little bit um, to really put this guy on the back foot, that you know, I can, I can make that make sense in my head. Um, but like the funeral, like when he goes to the funeral scene, uh, funeral home, and he's like bust out the chainsaw and starts chopping up the zombies that are members of his family or appear to be members of his family. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah we're getting a little over the top here, Jeremy. But uh, again, I can I can kind of understand um, understand <laughs> why, why you would do that. Uh, but that that being said, and as much of a fan of Jeremy as I am, and and love his storytelling, for me. The strength of this issue is the art, right? I mean, the art is just, just amazing. It's just so good. Um, so yeah, I was, I was blown away by the art. I thought it was fantastic, um, and the colors are uh, really done quite well, uh, also. Um, and yeah, uh, somewhat of a again, we're talking about being new reader friendly. Somewhat of a primer, right? Like if you are just getting into Green Lantern, maybe. You, or a flash guy never have read much green lantern and, and you just follow Jeremy Adams over from the flash. Good on you. Uh, you made an excellent choice in doing that. Um, but yeah, you don't know what this whole deal is with parallax. Who's parallax. What relationship does he have with Hal Jordan? My God, my friend, you have a quite the journey to go on. So if this spurs <laughs> people to go and discover that story and, you know, read, um, I, I guess all the way back to green lantern, uh, 48, 49, and 50 from what, volume two, and then into Final Night and into, you know, the return of Hal Jordan and all that, then yeah, you have, you have quite a journey to go on. Uh, should be a lot of fun. So yeah. uh, what about the backup with uh, Sinestro? Any well, thoughts? Well, I thought the writer, uh, Alex Segura, uh, focused, uh, I thought he kept it, I thought he kept it simple, but he 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 kept it consistent with what PKJ is doing with Sinestro in the backup of the of the regular Green Lantern run, and the artist Mario Fox Facillo also does an amazing job. Uh, the way he the way he illustrates a sort of like a multiple eyed Sinestro, where Sinestro is having sort of like a crisis of conscience, a crisis of of self identity, uh, because the question is: Is Sinestro? Is there any hope in Sinestro? It's it's the age old question that the Guardians always ask: Is is there any hope for Sinestro? Hal Jordan's always wondered that. Is there hope for Sinestro? Is he an anti hero? Uh, can he be redeemed? Or is Sinestro somebody who's untethered in his beliefs? Does he even believe in anything? And and one way to get under S Sinestro's skin is to you know have his daughter Im images of his daughter Sarnak uh, there as well to to reject him and and to 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 batter his ego and make him make him feel like he's directionless because right now with Sinestro what what is Sinestro like he's he's on earth he's he, he yeah he's got a yellow ring but he, or he doesn't seem to have maybe he does have a yellow ring we, we, we don't know exactly what his status is, and I don't think that the writer, uh, Alex Segura here, could really give us more details because uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson wants to give us those details in the backup. So this was a very sort of generic, sort of surface-level exploration of just posing the question, who is Sinestro? All we know is at the end of Sinestro's nightmare, he's got a smile on his face. It's like he doesn't really care. He, he, he's... he's it ends by saying that he, he knows who he's always been and it's time to let the world know too. 
Well, what has he always been? He's He's been different things in different adventures and under different writers. So I'm not really sure what that means, but I think that's intentional because we still have that question mark as to what is Sinestro going to end up being and how, how is he going to, how is PKJ going uh, to script him moving forward? Even though this was written by a different writer, I think it's consistent and it, it, it won't be, it won't interfere with anything that PKJ is doing. But. Yeah, I mean, how... Is PKJ the one? I mean, Sinestro most recently has been showing up in in Green Lantern from Jeremy Adams. So, I'm well, the not... backup though, he's not been. Jeremy Adams hasn't been writing the backup, has he? No, no. I mean, but, but the backup was the John Stewart story. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. I apologize. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not. Yeah, I'm not really sure how much. I mean, it made me wonder because I had the same thought. I'm like, well, is Alex Segura going to be? fleshing this story out more right. like I, I just don't know because i feel the same way you did it was sort of a generic paint by the numbers you know some of these even though we know these characters we've talked about it ad nauseum at this point if you know these characters and you you know what their nightmares are going to be before it even hits the page um, that's certainly the case here right like sinestro fears that he's become a monster he he he's a conflicted character he's a complex character he has regret he used to be a hero you know, now he's a villain. Now he's anti-hero. Uh, so in a, in a way, he's a very fascinating character. You know, one of the best kind of villains because he doesn't fit in any one particular box. Back in the day, it was like he was, and it was a trope even back then. He was a hero, became a villain, and uh, mustache twirling villain, right? Like completely villainous. You know, nothing really redeeming about him, and it, it just that's just kind of what it was. I mean, go back and look at those. Um, super friends, right? I mean, as two-dimensional and as villainous as you can get, which doesn't really jive with him being a hero at, at some point. So certainly leaning into that here and explaining that, yes, he he worries that he's a monster. I mean, one of his nightmares is him having remained the hero. Like, yeah, this guy's got some real hang-ups. The thing is, there's no real resolution, and he just sort of wakes up. Um, and yeah, to your point of him being smiley, like, what what is it that we weren't told? What is it that we don't know? That's what I'm left wondering. So I feel like the story's incomplete in a lot of ways, and I wonder where we're going to get. Maybe Jeremy Adams and Alex Segura talked about it. We know in issue three of Green Lantern we're going to get a lot more Sinestro. That's written by Jeremy Adams. This was by Segura. So Segura's a talented writer. So, yeah, where are we going to get more of Sinestro? I like Sinestro as a character. I think Sinestro as a character is very interesting. But it remains to be seen what you know how that's going to be fleshed out, um, if at all, at some point. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Night Terrors of Zatanna. This was one of the uh, the better of the the first issues. I thought uh, it's written by Dennis Culver, drawn by David Baldione, colored by Rain Barreto, lettered by Pratt Broso. It in on the cliffhanger last time of uh, of Robot Man, who Zatanna sort of inadvertently. Um, summoned you know she just said bring me a champion in her you know backwards speaking way and and who she brought was robot man uh but then robot man gets overwhelmed by the sleepless nights at the end by the queen of the sleepless nights whatever her name is and he she stabs him through the chest he actually experiences pain right which robot man is not supposed to feel it's right there in the name he's a robot he shouldn't feel pain uh and turns him into this like frank Elbaum. um Wizard of Oz sort of monster. Uh, the the Lord of Rot and Ruin. 
is what the sleepless yeah. queen called yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, the, the rust bringer, the, the Lord right. of the Rock. Rust bringer. So, yeah, just incredible design by by Baldione. I hope you guys all had a chance to listen to my chat that I had with Dennis Culver about this issue and about the dynamic between these two characters because he had a lot of uh, fun things to say. Uh, so yeah, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed seeing uh, Zatanna and uh, the interaction between her and um, and Robot Man and and where this leads. But again, this is another one of those books where it's a it's a perfect example of what I was saying. There is no end. There is no ending. There is no ending. She she frees uh, Robot Man from the influence from from you know changes them back from being Rustbringer to being Robot Man. But yeah, the story's not over. Let's see where they go from here. Um, so yeah, this was okay. The art was fantastic. Again, I enjoy the dynamic of, of, um, of the story here, but yeah, I'm left a little disappointed because again, it's like, well, there's no end, there's no real resolution. Right. Um, but I, I did enjoy Zatanna as a strong character in the hands of Dennis Culver. I did enjoy, um, the relationship we had last issue between, Robot Man and Zatanna and how it's established. And then here, when uh, Robot Man is is freed from the Sleepless Night's influence by Zatanna, and Zatanna offers uh, for him to be returned from where she got him. And he's like, no, 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 I want to stay with you. I want to see this through. So, yeah, I did enjoy that aspect of the story. What were your thoughts on it? I thought that... Uh I thought it was interesting that once again, it's we have another hero who, I mean, we have the we have the sleepless queen, Maiden Iron, and Sir Morbid, which I love those names, cool names for characters. Sir Morbid, Maiden Iron, Sleepless Queen, that, that's kind of cool. But you know, they they don't their belief in magic is not as powerful as Zatanna. Zatanna literally lets herself get stabbed by the sword that she, that was used to convert Robot Man into the rust bringer and she literally pulls the knife she pulls the sword out of herself because it's she just created some massive illusion because her her belief in magic is more powerful than the sleepless queen and the maiden iron and the sir morbid all combined and and so really she makes about as uh, she she makes it's kind of a joke i mean it's it's sort of like green how uh, hal jordan made mincemeat of uh insomnia uh in 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 his uh, adventure with uh, in Night Terrors, Zatanna is is just kicking ass in in her Night Terrors, and because her belief in magic is far more powerful than Insomnia, it would appear, and all his minions. And uh, I thought that was that was pretty cool. Now, how exactly you know what's going to happen? I mean, I love the fact. Uh, I, what I like about this, and and your interview with Dennis Culver, I mean, he. He basically reiterated that, and and, and so did you in uh, your compliments of, of his idea here. The whole idea of like hex and violence. I mean, it just rolls off the tongue. Robot Man and Satana. Who and who and who would ever think that those two would be put together in a, in an adventure? And bloody hell, it it kind of works in a crazy kind of way. And I suppose Robot Man is used to having very strange teammates. So Robot Man working with uh, Zatanna and Zatanna working with him. Zatanna might not be used to working with uh, strange people, but, uh, well, you know, on the other hand, she probably is. I mean, she is a member of Justice League Dark after all. She's, I mean, she normally hangs around with a talking monkey uh, and a very sarcastic certain uh, John Constantine. But yeah, it, it works. Uh, this This definitely... You know, again, did much happen? No. Story-wise, not, not much did happen. Although I will say I, I like the idea that 
I really want, I'd like to see Sir Morbid, Modern, and, and the Sleepless Queen sometime in the future. I actually like the characters here. The potential for these characters to be elaborated on and actually gain more prominence in the future is what I like. And this whole idea of Zatanna and Robot Man, that's such an eclectic idea. I wouldn't mind seeing Zatanna over in the pages of Do Unstoppable Doom Patrol uh, Volume 2, which will hopefully come out after Volume 1. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. Sorry there, you're on mute. You're on mute. Yeah, I, I would like more Zatanna written as written by Dennis Culver. He does a, a fantastic job. So, well, yeah, we'll have to wait and see if that's uh, in the cards. Uh, all right, up next, our last Night Terrors issue, Night Terrors, The Flash, number two, written by Alex Pacnadel, art by Daniel Bayless and Tom Dernick, colors by Igor Monte and Pete Pantazis, and letters by Simon Boland. What do you think of this? I actually really enjoyed the... Uh, I thought the art here was extremely graphic. Uh, I, you know, I got to say, cover A. I didn't like the cover of cover of, of cover A. Uh, the the alternate covers, cover B, C, and the and the ratio covers are all really good. The, the unfortunately the the most the ugliest cover is literally cover A, which is so unfortunate because it just it just doesn't work at all, and it's, it doesn't even look like it has anything to do with the actual story. But the other covers are fantastic. The one in fifty in particular is great. But the story itself, I uh, 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 writer Alex Pacnadel, I thought did what I enjoyed what he did here. The artists, uh, the artists, two artists, Daniel Bayless and Tom Dernick. Man, you know, Barry Allen is racing back in time to repeatedly, he's racing back in time to the Speed Force to, to, to continue to try to save uh, Wally West, who was essentially uh, killed at the hands of uh, uh, Gorilla Grodd. And he's so desperate to get faster that, you know, he says that something's poisoning the Speed Force. And the, the poisoning of the Speed Force... It, uh, is creating friction in the speed force. Now, normally, if you travel through the speed force, there's no friction, so you don't get burned. That's how the flashes survive going at supersonic speeds and, and pass, pass the speed of light. And so, uh, but friction uh, now is something that exists in the speed force, and Barry Allen keeps going back in time through the speed force to try to save Wally, and he continuously is failing, and it's having an impact on his body. And he's so desperate in, in his nightmare to, to get faster and become faster that he actually ends up literally, uh, you know, destroying his friendship with, uh, his, with Hal Jordan, uh, literally going through Hal Jordan by literally, you know, chopping him into pieces at super speed or running right through him. And, and the only reason Hal survives is because he's got the power ring. Uh, he also... Barry also becomes a uh, – he kills Irobar Don. He travels to the 25th century and he literally kills. So he violates his oath against killing. Uh, so he loses his friendship with Hal. He, he kills Irobar Don in the 25th century to gain his powers uh, on the speed force. And then to make it worse, he discovers that he still can't save Wally at the end because the monster in the speed force that has been stopping him all this time are multiple versions of himself creating a collective version of a bunch of – past Barry Allen's and it's actually himself that he he's fighting his he's fighting his greatest enemy and he actually fails what I find extraordinary about this issue is that we get to the end of the issue here this is a nightmare where Barry Allen does not succeed Barry Allen would have been he basically loses in his nightmare he fails to save Wally West in his nightmare he utterly fails and ironically enough uh and thankfully for us Wally West fans of which I am certainly am Wally West is who, is who 
pulls him out of the nightmare. And and so he Barry is actually Barry needs to be saved and pulls out of pulled out of his nightmare from Wally West, who ironically enough is faster than Barry and is managing to catch up to Barry because Barry is running around the world in a dreamlike state, and it only of course Wally can catch him because Wally is as Wally says to him, "I'm faster than you are," <laughs> and I like that. So Barry Allen fans may not like that, but I liked it, and I actually liked the twist that. Barry Allen, we, we saw this was horrific. Barry Allen de, de, destroyed his friendship. He he violated his oath against killing, and he failed to save Wally West. His nightmare was literally true within his dream, and so I thought that was quite extraordinary. I also say that I don't know how how did Wally get Barry out of the out of the dream state. That's not explained. I think that's a little bit of a plot hole. But then, you know, we don't know what the rules are regarding the nightmare realm here. But I thought this was the art was fantastic. The the the, the it, this had a horror element to it that uh, that uh, the um, artist artist Daniel Bayless and Tom Dernick they did a fantastic job. I got a sense that this was a horror show. I mean, when he's literally stabbing and taking the spear and stabbing himself with the spear of destiny, he's stabbing his collective holes and selves and past versions of himself in the Speed Force. He looks horrific, and this really d- did have a horror element to it. And uh, kudos to Pete. Uh, um, Pantazis on on the colors they really popped and so I I thought this was really really well done and I this was probably this was probably my this was my favorite Night Terrors issue this week just because I thought I I just liked I liked the fact that Barry failed and that not every hero can overcome their nightmare and I liked that element plus the art was was really good as well so what do you think? Well, based on the fact that when we reviewed issue one, I said the thing in the speed force that's causing the problems is Barry himself. (laughs) Obviously, it was very predictable. You know, Uh, we knew it was going to be Barry. We knew all along. And then as this issue progresses and Barry becomes increasingly more horrific, I I think at one point somebody said, God, like, look at yourself. Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Have you smelled yourself? You look bad. You smell bad. You're turning into a monster. Like, again, you could just see it coming a a mile away. That being said, uh, it it was interesting in that, like like you said, we're getting a chance to see Barry, you know, in this situation. You know, he feels trapped. He feels like he's got to do what he's got to do in order to save Wally. And so all of that really worked on on several levels. Um, But again, it's not really anything that's new or, or groundbreaking. As far as Wally waking up, uh, Barry, it was sort of the way I took that. You know, Barry is so shocked, which I don't know why you're shocked. We've seen this any number. Of, did you go see the Flash movie in the theaters? It's always been <laughs> felt, which I, you know, as much as I love Jeff Johns, I never was a big fan of the Flashpoint um, event, specifically for that reason. Barry's too smart. Barry has learned the lesson time and time again. He's too smart to go to the past and mess with time. And so I never, I always took that with a grain of salt. It just don't, doesn't feel like anything that Barry Allen would have done. Right. And as much as the Ezra Miller version of Barry is not, you know, that close to what we see in the comics, I still feel like he should have been smart enough to know you can't go back and mess with the past, but whatever it's happened over and over. Apparently it's been retconned that Barry's not smart enough to not know that. And he does go back and screw things up. Um, so again, not the most original, uh, but yet he does seem shocked when he 
is confronted with his this monstrous self. I mean, very much in line with what we saw in the Flash movie, right? Uh, all these different versions of him that he's because he's gone back time and time and time again. They've combined into something uh, horrific. Uh, although I will say, there's no part of me that thinks that Alex Pactadel ripped off the Flash movie in any way, shape, or form. Mostly because he wrote this long before the flat, you know, he got a chance to see the Flash movie. I'm sure this was written months and months ago. Um, so that being said, yeah, very shocked by seeing himself. So that's, I, I think, in a lot of ways, sort of wakes him up. And then he's running around. He's running around. He, even though he's sleeping, he's sleep running. Right. That's what we see at the end. That's what we're told at the end. He's sleep running, and. Uh, Wally tackles him and wakes him up. So I think it's a combination of Wally tackling him, the fact that he's shocked that it's he himself who's cause, causing the uh, a Wally to be killed in his dream. I think that sort of wakes him up, slows him down enough that Wally's able to catch him, tackles him. That's what wakes him up. He wakes up, he looks around. Where's all this damage coming from? It's you, dude. You've been running around in your sleep causing all this damage. I liked that little wrinkle. That was pretty cool. Um Yes, there's a horror feel to it. Do I like that? Eh, again, mixed feelings. Uh, it does have me worried. Like, I wasn't worried enough already for the Cy Spurrier run because that's a horror feel for Flash. Um, it just Flash is not a character that suits that lends itself to horror in my mind. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see how it all works out with the cosmic horror of Cy Spurrier's um, story. But overall, I thought this was okay, if not uh, a little bit predictable. Uh, all right, on to the first of the regular issues. Uh, we have Spirit World Erosion from writer Alyssa Wong. Hanning is the artist. Sebastian Chang on colors. Janice Chang on letters. What do you think of this? Well, I, I, I found this. Uh, I found this challenging. I had to reread this a couple of times. But uh, you know, I, I find this more challenging than I found Monkey Prince. Monkey Prince grew on me. This one's growing on me, but not as fast. Uh, but Exanthe is an interesting character. I'm still not. I'm still not. I'm still trying to get a handle on exactly how her powers work. Uh, what What we do know is that uh, apparently she's she's actually dead, and she lives in the spirit world, and she she can utilize some joss paper, and she can when she's in the spirit world or in or in the real world where the living people live, she can whatever she imagines her joss paper to be can manifest and become reality and she uses uses it as a weapon and in this and and this issue well we're at issue four so there's a lot that's happened but essentially she's trying to rescue her neighbors because there's this collective and a collective is a group of spirits that are slowly eroding and what happens is as as far as i can tell what the spirit world spirit world is based on is that is the idea that all of us reincarnate so when we die our spirits go into spirit world and then uh and then eventually we reincarnate and that's sort of like the cycle of life we we were born again we we live a life we die we go through the spirit world and some other process and then we reincarnate what's happened here is that there's a evil sort of poison collective that's going around that's dis that's taking the spirits in this case taking the spirits of xanthi's neighbors and her and her one of her teachers popo who is a former sorceress and even her friend bowen and essentially what happens is that if the spirits get 
caught up in the collector for too long, they erode. And a, a spirit that erodes forgets, loses its memory. And a spirit that loses its memory will not be able to reincarnate. And so... I think that's kind of cool. And uh, I needed to sort of get a handle on that for me to enjoy the story because this is a uh, one thing about a writer, Alyssa Wong, uh, which is is that she's she doesn't spoon feed the reader. And I generally like that. I don't mind being challenged. And I was challenged here and I was challenged in, the, in some of the previous issues as well. And but I'm I'm slowly getting I'm starting to like Xanthi. Uh, I'm starting to like they, and I'm even starting to use the proper pronoun when I refer to her, although I'm sure I'll screw up from time to time. And I actually in enjoy this. I like Constantine and Cassandra Kane being this in this as well. Uh, she, uh, Xanthi even manages to acquire what might be a future sidekick uh, at the end of this issue. And uh, there's some tragedy at the end of it. Her friend Bowen or th their friend Bowen happens to be possessed by the collective and his so the, the only way that the only way to defeat this collective is to actually go to the Jade Tower and the members of the Jade Tower are sort of like the evil government the evil people that control the spirit world they're they're sort of like a corrupt government and and sorcerer uh, Popo doesn't want to have to uh, team up with them but it looks like there's gonna ha there's gonna be a team up. So Xanthi next issue along with Cassandra Kane and John Constantine will be teaming up with the the members of the Jade Tower, and maybe this other one of the other questionable characters, I forget his name, um, in order to defeat the Collective. And I, I still don't quite have a handle on, on how all these moving parts work, but it is intriguing. And in fairness. I have to hold myself accountable because this is only the fourth issue. This is a brand new mythology for me. And, uh, you know, I got I to gotta remind myself that w there was a time when I was seven years old and it took me more than four issues to get a handle on the Legion of Superheroes. So I, I think I can cut Alyssa Wong some slack. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's not bad. Yeah, I, I sort of feel the same way. Uh, it is new mythology, new world, new characters. So you've got to you know, take the time to, to kind of understand and see where she's coming from. That being said, I, I think this is a, a perfect example of what I was just talking about before with like Neil Adams and Scott Snyder and what have you, where Alyssa's ideas are so big, there's just probably not enough real estate, especially because, you know, unlike something that was done before with those uh, creators that I just mentioned, you know, working on Dead Man or, uh, well, in Scott's case, you know, uh, specifically I'm referring to the... Um, Dark Knight's death metal series, which obviously was was huge and had a lot of characters. But when he's just doing Dead Man or just Batman and Robin or what have you. Alyssa has a pretty big cast of characters, right? We have John Constantine, we have Cassandra Kane, we have Popo, we have uh, you know the other uh, her other allies in the spirit world, plus um, Xanthi herself. So, and, and again, she wants to tell the story she wants to sell, but real estate is limited. So. This series, unfortunately, has suffered from a little bit of an inconsistency of pacing. Um, and I go back to, I think it might have been in the end of the first issue or the second issue, where it ends on a cliffhanger with Xanthi being discovered in the uh, living world by her mother and being like, well, you're still alive. And then the next time we see her, they're sitting at the dinner table having a meal. Like, there's, there's some stuff there that we missed. There's some stuff that happened in the meantime that we didn't get. Um, just because there's, I think, not quite enough space for her to tell all the story that she wants to tell. So 
Uh, again, I'll, I'll cut her some slack. This is entertaining. The art is absolutely amazing. Color work, absolutely amazing. Um, one of those ones where I feel like I'm going to go back and reread it when everything is said and done, and I'm going to get a lot more out of it um, at that point. But we'll just have to we'll have to wait and see um, how it all wraps up and, and how satisfactory it feels. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman Incorporated number 11. I think this is the penultimate issue. There's one more to go. Written by Ed Brisson, John Timms, Sergio Acuna, and Nicola Semeja are the artists. Rex Locus on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, I thought this was fantastic. It was action-packed. It was a ton of fun. Um, yeah, I just, there was nothing about it that I didn't like. Uh, I just, it was it was just a heck of a lot of fun. Um these members of Batman Incorporated, they're clearly dealing with a lot, if you will. Um, and it's, uh, it's clear that uh, they don't agree. They don't see eye to eye. But that's kind of the point of Batman Incorporated, right? Like all these different characters having been brought together by this uh, by Batman to basically justice in, in the right sort of way. Um and that means no killing, right? Well, unless killing is the only thing you can do in order to save the day, right? Um, which is what they're being told, basically, uh, by the Joker. So um, a lot of action. The art is uh, fantastic, like I said. Um, I still don't feel like I know these characters really, really well in terms of, like, if I see them on this, the page, I'm like, oh, that's Gaucho. Or, oh, that's the knight. Like, it's still a big cast of characters. I'm still trying to, you know, figure out who they are in terms of visually identifying them and, and what have you. But on the other hand, uh, character-wise, personality-wise, I do feel like Rissan's done a great job of establishing uh, who they are. And, I, and I, I'm kind of starting to be able to predict how they'll react in any given situation. The other thing I like about it is this, uh, this series, it, it could have leaned into just being a Ghostmaker series, which is kind of how it felt, maybe, like it was headed toward. Um, but Brisson did not do that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I would argue that Ghostmaker has, like, the least screen time in this issue and the least development, which is perfectly fair and justified because he's had the most outside of this series previously. So we already kind of know who he is. Um, so, yeah, 100% spend your time on on the other characters. And uh, Brisson does that, and he does it to great effect. So... I'm sad that there's only one issue left because this has been a fantastic series. And, you know, that's me saying it when the second arc in the series, the final arc in the series is Joker centric, except it's not right. Like the, yes, the Joker's pulling the strings, but he's more like a plot device. We're not getting over the top Joker. We're getting these other Joker characters that are inspired by him that are, in my mind are far more interesting than him. They are sort of taking the stage. And I, again, I really enjoy that. Uh, the other thing that I noticed, um, and this happened a few years ago, that the Joker has one pink eye and one green eye. That didn't used to be the case back in the day. I don't remember when it happened, but apparently it's canon now because everybody draws them that way. Yeah. And he used to just have two green eyes. I don't know why they did that. I don't know what the decision was. I think I, it wasn't it Scott Snyder, Scott Snyder's run where he, the, the death in the, the family, wasn't it death in the family with Joe the plumber? Wasn't that? Yeah. Wasn't that, it, it could, it could it could have been. Um, I, I just I remember the first time I really started noticing it. And it started bothering me. 
was in the James Tynan Joker series. That was really a Gordon series. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, it's just a little nitpick I have. Like, ah, really? Do we? Do we really? The Joker's not weird enough looking as it is. We got to give him, you know, what is it called? Heterochromia, heterochromia or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I'm enjoying the series. Again, this is a perfect example of why I'm such a big fan of Ed Brisson. The guy's just a fantastic writer. Uh, what, what, are, what were your thoughts on it? Well, I tell you, you know, there's only there is only one issue left. And, you know, Ghostmaker is sort of like at this point, it's what I love what Ed Brisson has done is that he has sort of framed this that Ghostmaker has, has is is very, very quickly losing the respect of all the other members of Ghost of, of Batman Incorporated. And that's very, very paramount. One of the things that stands out here to me is, you know, compare this to like Batman and the Outsiders or Batman and anybody. Batman always has respect. Even if a character doesn't like Batman, even if teammates don't like Batman, you know the guy's got principles. You know you don't basically, you know you're not going to defy him. This is something where, you know, Ghostmaker basically is putting it out there saying, look, the Joker said if we don't do this, if we don't kill this, this they're, they're going to kill people. So we have to kill all of Joker's minions. And, I mean, of course we can't imagine Batman ever playing that game. But and frankly, neither can the members of Batman Incorporated. But Ghostmaker, see, Ghostmaker is failing here and failing rather spectacularly. In fact, it's the Batman of China who holds him accountable because Batman, the Batman of China, his sister is Alpaca, and Alpaca is the one who uh, sort of uh, she almost looks like she's got like some rabbit ears on top of a hoodie, and she's she's one of the Joker's minions, and. Um, and, and and she she doesn't believe that I mean she doesn't think that there's an a, a explosive device in her head and she she has an agenda to basically kill people I mean she's she's clearly insane but Batman of China her brother wants to save her but Ghostmaker doesn't want to do that meanwhile we got El Gaucho uh, we got uh, we got pardon me Grey Wolf and the and um, the Knight trying to uh, dissect the one of the uh, computer chips that that uh, that uh, die laughing uh, the member of Joker Incorporated gave to them because die laughing betrayed the Joker and saying oh this is how you stop it and so they're trying to figure out that to to affect the signal so there won't be any exploding heads meanwhile Dusty Bronco is fighting off against Raven Red Dusty Bronco uh, kill or killed Raven Red's father, and we got the origin. Somehow, Ed Burson managed to find space in this issue to give us the origin of of Dusty Bronco, who was surprise, surprise, a rodeo clown who uh, was so beat up as a rodeo clown he needed drugs to to uh, st to basically keep himself, you know, pain free. And in making a drug deal for some painkillers, he ended up getting beat up by Raven Red's father and quite badly by the looks of things. And so Raven Red, it's going to be interesting to see if Raven Red follows through at the end of this issue with actually killing Dusty Bronco. I suspect not. I think that Raven Red may have a different approach to uh, perhaps Raven Red's father used lethal force and Raven Red is going to take a different path. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I, I thought it was uh, I thought it was really well done. Um, Charles de Gaulle is in Paris fighting Night Runner. And uh, El Gacho uh, takes out El, El Paco and the Batman of China tells uh, tells his sister the truth about tells his sister El Paco the truth about the Joker. But she doesn't she doesn't believe him. And so we got it's still an absolute mess. But somehow Ed Brisson manages to 
to put this all together. This is going to read even better as, as a trade. I read this multiple times. So even though when I'm ranting like this or raving like this, this is intended to be a rave because I like this. It may not sound like it make, is as that the pacing is as good as it is. I think it's very well done for all these moving parts. The tension here is really building, and I'm really curious to see how this ends. And what is the Joker's agenda? I think it's becoming clear that the Joker's agenda here is to make Ghostmaker to say to Ghostmaker, and we've you said this before. We've talked about it before. Other reviewers have also. This is the Joker saying, Ghostmaker, you think you can run Batman Incorporated? give it up and the joker i have to say has been tremendously successful ghostmaker really is a failure here i'm disappointed in ghostmaker you know i remember that uh, Ch chip sardaski series i thought ghostmaker was more competent than this i i thought he was more competent than this and cape and maybe but it's almost as if ghostmaker is is panicking he's af he's afraid he's not as competent he's not as good as batman and that's fairly obvious but yet you look at all these other members like knight and uh gray wolf and the batman of china uh, these are individuals who uh, that that are willing to give their lives, and and in fact, some of the Batman members of Batman Incorporated have already given their life uh, uh, on that principle. And the cowardice of Ghostmaker here, the moral cowardice, the, the failure, I think, is really paramount here. And the big test next issue is to see if Raven Red is going to follow through in killing Dusty Bronco. And so. Kudos to Ed Brisson here, and God, we got to give John Timms and Sergio Acuna and Nicola says Mazija artists have done a fantastic job. I got to admit, I I would never have guessed there were three artists on this comic as I was reading it. I I mean, I'm I'm sure if I scrutinize it now, I could distinguish it, but I thought this was it was seamless to me artistically from from page to page. I just thought it worked really well, and the three different artists because we're dealing with different geographies and 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 different demographics in terms of different parts of the world where these where where this these adventures are taking place, it really works well. And so, yeah, I mean, I can't um I got to sing its praises. It's a good issue. Yeah, I'm laughing out loud as you're talking about it here because the, the names of the members of Joker Incorporated, Charles Charles De Gaulle, De Gaulle yeah. Austin, Dusty Bronco, I mean, just, just hilarious. hilarious. Uh, you're right about the art. Um, three artists, their styles are different. Uh, Serge Acuna and John Timms are kind of, kind of close um, as opposed to uh, Nicholas Samigio. His art kind of stands out on its own. He's the one that does the the Charles de Gaulle pages, but you're right. I mean, it, it works. It works for what it is. Uh, it works for what it is. So, uh, all right. Up next, here's one you mentioned uh, from the start. Uh, Danger Street, number eight, written by Tom King. Jorge Fornes is the artist. Dave Stewart on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. What did you think? Oh, man. Um, I took – this was um, – I had so much fun with this issue – I actually spent the most time reading this one. Uh, I got to tell you that, uh, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed Tom King's stories before, but how I didn't think, I'm really impressed how masterfully this story is coming together. And this is where it really pays dividends for someone like myself who, you know, I don't always look forward to reading every comic book that we review, right? Uh, but I've been, I've been taking notes on this issue on this series every single time we review it and wow 
maybe it's because I've done that because number one, because I have to, uh, <laughs> to remember it all, but it's, it really comes together. Well, all these moving parts, it's just coming together so well. Uh, I mean, just to, just to give you a snapshot, how things, and you know, spoiler alert here, you want to tie in all this stuff from the first issue. This is, this is how good this is. So from the very first issue on the very first page of the first issue, I encourage you to go on the very first page of issue one. I never even noticed this. The very first page of issue one, a member of the green team who you don't see is trading Dr. Fate's helmet for for something, but we don't know what they're trading for. And we it's subsequently discovered in that issue that that they traded for the, the diamond arm of Metamorpho. So we've got a green team member who is a Commodore Murphy, ends up with this diamond arm. He trades the, the Dr. Fate's helmet, gives it to Metamorpho. Metamorpho uses that with along with Starman and the Warlord uh, to try to call upon Darkseid. Instead, they accidentally call upon Atlas. Uh, Metamorpho gets, ends up getting killed or shattered. Um, also, Good Looks ends up, uh, the, the dingbats of Danger Street happen to see be near the battle. Good Looks gets killed. Lady Cop investigates the crime scene. She ends up with Dr. Fate's helmet from the crime scene. And meanwhile, the death of Atlas calls upon the High Father to, and Darkseid to get involved. Uh, High Father sends Manhunter in to take out the Dream Team. Meanwhile, Darkseid sends Orion in. Orion is taken out by Starman. And meanwhile, we got Manhunter at this issue, ultimately teaming up with the uh, Manhunter, attempts to take out the Green Team unsuccessfully. Uh, he ends up, at the end of this issue, teaming up with seemingly the Outsiders and Abdul to fight Codename Assassin, uh, who's working for Commodore Murphy. And Codename Assassin has used his powers to convert the Metamorphos diamond arm into a diamond sword. Meanwhile, Manhunter ends up with the Sword of Shambhala from Warlord that was uh, and that ended up in the Outsider's hands from all the machinations and previous issues. And so, next issue promises to be some mega battle. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's the central plot. That's what's and it's evolved into this. Meanwhile, this issue, the character works fantastic. I mean, Tom King has just done such a fabulous job. He's the, there's a wonderful, I, I love the conversation between Lady Cop. Lady Cop has a, has a date with Jack Ryder. And Jack Ryder, surprisingly enough, Lady Cop, I think, actually finds Jack Ryder attractive. Jack Ryder's not, he's not even drinking in this issue. We know him to be the creeper. But she's, she wants to go out on a date with, with, well, she doesn't call it a date, but she wants to have dinner with Jack Ryder, seemingly to find out some information about what he might know about Commodore Murphy. And in order to get information from him, he, she's drinking wine, but he won't drink because he doesn't drink. Well, he finally starts drinking wine and he gets absolutely hammered out of his mind where he blurts out and he mentions that he mentions that he saw a doctor, that, that he saw the diamond arm. And because Lady Cop saw a bunch of crushed diamonds on the crime scene and she thought maybe a statue, a, a diamond statue was destroyed, but it, we know it was metamorpho. And we know that... Uh, uh, Jack Ryder mentioned that he had the, the Dr. Fate helmet is no longer there. So maybe he traded it for that. And so she's piecing all this together. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, we got the codename assassin who's talking with Commodore Murphy. Commodore Murphy is, is 
you know, telling him, you know, what do you need? What do you have? And so Commodore, so Commodore Murphy gives him that this diamond arm of metamorpho that he changes into, that he uses his powers to imagine a weapon, a, a diamond, diamonded sword. And, uh, Meanwhile, we get more images of Lady Cop's origin of her trauma, where she that led to her becoming a cop, where her when she was younger, desiring, hoping to be saved by Superman, but Superman never showed up, and so you, you get you get more of an you get more of a, a an a feeling of why she maybe has some underlying resentment towards superheroes in general, and all of this is just. All this, just little subtle, and this is general page. You know, if if you blink, you'll miss some moments. And uh, on the pages, uh, Jose Farnes on the art. I mean, wow, just an amazing job. There are so many little things that are going on behind the scenes. We see the outsiders: Harry, Larry, Lizard, Johnny, Mighty Mary, Doc, Scary, Amazing Ronnie. Uh, we see uh, <laughs> again. We see we see the origin of the outsiders in the Green Team, and perhaps in what it, what is one of the most. Uh, I think inspired origins is is how Tom King links the origins of the green team with the outsiders in such a brilliant way. Sometimes somebody in the past, you know, when when the outsiders were were when the green team and the outsiders used to go to the same school when they were younger and they played a game. And the game was if you don't step on the if you don't step on you you, you can hop around the pavement but you can't step on on the crack on the on the grass growing in between the cracks and if you do you basically lose and uh, and in that and in that contest the green team supposedly won and because the person said the person was holding the 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 doctor fate's helmet and and said to them whichever one of you group of kids whether it's the outsiders or the green team whichever one of you wins uh I'm going to make your dreams come true. And whichever one of you doesn't, I'm going to give you nightmares. And we just assume because the outsiders are so ugly that they must have lost and they got the nightmare. And the green team, because they became teen billionaires, that they must have got the dream come true. But Tom King, of course, flips the script. And in such a brilliant manner, uh, as and it really is to be read, to be appreciated for what it is. This is by far the most substance-filled issue I read this week. This is um, if you're, you know, if you don't care about. I mean, this is outside DC continuity. This is linking canceled series from the '70s in a brilliant way. This is I, I can't wait to, wait to buy this as a hardcover. I, th- I think this is fantastic. The, the way all these characters are tied into place, I can't recommend this series enough. If uh, if you can buy the back issues, buy them and read them all. If you're going to buy the issues now individually, you, you can't go in cold. You will be lost. But man, you're so, I feel so rewarded sticking with this series uh, because I've enjoyed every issue. It it really is so well written that uh, and and it's and all the pieces are coming together and let me tell you something you and I have both been critical of Tom King where the pieces don't come together I don't feel his Batman came together very everyone always brings up his Batman his Batman look uh, I think Tom King's flying on all, all cylinders here all the pieces are coming together in this story very very well and full props to him and again I can't sing a, I can't sing the praises of this issue enough it was very very hard to choose between this is my pick in the week and uh, another comic that we're going to be reviewing soon, but uh, it, it was tough. It was, it was a tough choice. But uh, what do you think of this issue? Yeah, well, I mean, you did a recap, and it took like twenty minutes, fifteen minutes. I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but 
But here's the thing. There's so much going on, right? Like throughout the series, and and we talked about it from the first issue, and we kind of harped on it maybe the first three issues. These these characters that, you know, on paper don't have anything in common. The only thing they have in common is they all showed up in first issue special, right? That's it. But when you talk about somebody as out there as Starman or Warlord – and then the dingbats of Danger Street or Lady Cop who doesn't even have any superpowers or Creeper who's just this weird Steve Ditko character. Like, there's not there's not a lot there to tie these people together. So, you know, I I haven't asked Tom. I should ask him next time he comes on the show. Like, did you just want to give yourself a challenge? Hey, let me, let me take all these disparate characters and figure out a way to tell a really good story with them that makes – total sense like was that was that the challenge you gave yourself because mission accomplished right like it is a very good series a very fun series and we've gotten in each particular issue we've gotten different aspects of the story some some maybe a little more on the green team some focus maybe a little bit more on uh on starman or the dingbats themselves in this issue as things are starting to come to a head we're getting every, we're getting it all right. We're getting, he's got to touch on everything, and that's why, in a way, this issue feels like I wouldn't say it feels like it jumps around a lot, but it feels like uh, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of moving parts going on here that you have to kind of make them all make sense in in your head because it's just it's a lot in order to tell a story with this many sort of strange and divergent characters. Yeah, you've got to take your time to you know to tell the story that you want to tell, and it, it's not it's not easy to do. So I give Tom a lot of credit for doing it in a way that that makes sense, and it, it's really impressive what he's managed to uh, to pull off here. Um, just yeah, um, so kudos to him. The art by Jorge Fornes, like perfect artist to choose to do this series. Um, it, it, it really works on a lot of different levels. So yeah, I was a big fan of it. I'm still a big fan of it. Um, we'll have to wait and see how it all plays out in the end. Uh, but for my, yeah, for my taste, it's, uh, yeah, it's a really fantastic series. Um, just because it's one I definitely want to have Tom on to talk about more uh, in detail. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Wildcats number 10. This is written by Matthew Rosenberg. Steven Segovia and Tom Bernick are the artists. Elmer Santos is on colors. Farron Delgado on letters. Uh, we finally get uh, Grifter back in the main DCU and uh, a ton of action. So what would you think of this? I, uh, I, I, I still have mixed feelings about Matthew Rosenberg on this. I, I just feel, for some reason, I just feel that it's, it, it always feels a little bit on edge to me. It feels a little bit convoluted. But... But yet there's always something that kind of pulls me back in that we finally in this issue, finally, we have Marlo going to the Wildcats saying, look, I want you guys to come work for me because Marlo was it was always it was unclear up to this point if he was being manipulated by Amanda Waller. And uh, we weren't really sure exactly what all the machinations were going on. Uh, this issue starts off with the peacemaker with peacemaker on behalf of Amanda Waller wanting to negotiate some uh, the pieces of a meteorite from an Eastern European leader, and then Spartan shows up there for some reason, and they they don't want the me- the fragments of the meteorite to get into the hands of Amanda Waller, and so they sabotage that, and then uh, 
you know, Spartan escapes and takes off. What that has to do with the main story, I don't know. Uh, we we know that Spartan and Voodoo are are trying to uh, escape the. Uh, they're, they're trying to escape from Jason Halliday and all his minions and uh, ends up this character Maul uh, tries to stop uh, the Spartan and it's actually Michael Cray is in the mind of Spartan. So Spartan is actually not Android construct. So Michael Cray is actually the character formerly known as Deadshot. Michael Cray's consciousness is in Spartan and he, he's fighting Maul. And so what ends? You said Deadshot, it's Deathblow. Oh, Deathblow. Thank you. So uh, Michael Cray's death blow, his consciousness is in Spartan. Spartan then, uh, with Michael Cray in his mind, actually enters the consciousness of Maul. And Maul helps Voodoo and Spartan escape. And so now Wildcats actually have a mole within Jason Halliday's organization. Uh, meanwhile, we've got, we've got Zealot. We've got, uh, we've got uh, Zealot and... Um, more of uh, Zealot and Fairchild and Lady Tron talking with Marlo in their limousine and John Lynch is with them. And they basically work out that, okay, they've, they decide even though they don't trust each other, they're going to trust each other. And they know now, they believe now that Jason Halliday is, is the enemy that they, that, that they need to, to fight. But before they can actually figure that out, they're attacked by the Justice League. I mean, or they, Batman and Black Canary and Hawkgirl show up. Uh, because they want to just want to talk with them. Well, that ain't going to work. So you end up with a fight between Black Canary and Zealot and Batman and Spire. Like, all oh, we get this huge battle, this huge fight scene. And then out of the blue, guess who shows up? Grifter from his time in the multiverse from that, that other planet <laughs> or the other, the other Earth. And uh, yeah, just, you know, chaos ensues. And, you know, you know, again, Matthew Rosenberg is really good at doing dialogue and doing the quick quips between the characters between batman and grifter and and all the characters matthew rosenberg does a good handle on the dialogue here and he's uh and, and he's good at that uh it's it's the maneuverings and the minutiae of the plot moving from one plot line to another just seems a little bit monotonous it, it feels like th this is issue 10 and i i have a feeling i'm going to feel the same way as i did with task force z that you know we could have probably done this in six issues instead of 12 but you know again it's it's not bad it's it's entertaining i mean I, i'm having fun and so here i am sounding like am i being critical yet i am i'm actually physically buying these issues because i kind of like them i i do kind of like them but i i do get frustrated so it's a frustrated buy for me but matthew rosenberg always manages to keep me on board and i i like how he I actually don't mind how he scripts uh, Black Canary, Arsenal, and uh, Batman here. Sorry, I, I said Hawkgirl earlier. I meant uh, Arsenal, but uh, I I thought it was a little uneven with its uh, in terms of its of its plotting from earlier issues. But I think now we're finally starting to get more interesting. The, the, the chess pieces. The players finally know what the truth is. I think, and we finally know who's who and who's going to be fighting who. But we're at issue 10. We only got two issues left. So I suppose it's about time we got that. So I got mixed feelings about it. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a very political book, right? I've talked about that. I've talked about it. It doesn't always have uh, the right balance between um, the politics and the action, right? I think that's where it falls down sometimes, um, that it's not always, uh, it's not always a good balance. 
Uh, and the other thing that I've talked about is, you know, how much, um, how much sort of uh, background do you need? How much background do you need on the Wildcats to really make this make sense? To make it stand on its own and make it make sense, um, yeah, it can be a little bit problematic at, at times. It's not always, it's not always a hundred percent that it's it's making sense for me. Um, in terms of, uh, well, why are these characters doing what they're doing? It feels like there's a little bit missing. Um, but the way the story is presented and the way so many of the characters are, are keeping things back, they're withholding things even from their supposed allies, you can kind of understand why the, you know they get to that point. So, yeah, I think on a lot of levels it's, it's working for me. Is it a perfect series? No. Um, does it make me want to go back and, and – read more wildcats from the past yeah it does so you know from that perspective it is it is working the art's fantastic i love uh and this has been the case throughout uh for myself and i think for yourself as well even though the plot might be a little uneven and there might be little gaps here and there and we're not 100 percent sure where rosenberg has taken us at any particular time the voices he gives to the characters you know the, the words he puts in the mouth of zealot the words and dialogue he puts in the mouth of grifter or Marlowe, or even Voodoo. It's funny, it's hilarious. He, he really understands these characters. He has a deep love for these characters. That comes across in their dialogue. So Yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, if only for that reason, and for the amazing Steven Segovia art, I'm really enjoying it. Plus some of these other ideas, and I, I don't know if it's Rosenberg that came up with this idea, but you mentioned Deathblow. He, he was sort of like this generic Punisher ripoff character. This idea to, to say he was just this consciousness, right? That was downloaded into somebody's body where they basically harvested memories and experiences from all these different soldiers that had tons of combat experience and kind of infused it into the original Michael Cray body. And now when a body dies, they they're taking his consciousness and transferring it somewhere else. That's so much more interesting than just the generic death bubble character that we used to have. So, you know, we see in this issue when it starts, he's in the body of one of the John Spartan robots, and then he transfers himself to Maul it's just so fun. It opens up so many other interesting avenues of storytelling for that character. So again, big fan of what Rosenberg's doing. Um, again, I just wish I had more time to read more comics, right? I go back and, and read all the Wildstorm stuff and all the Wildcat stuff and, and see if it brings more context to this. Or maybe I'll just have Matthew on and make him explain it to us all. Uh, all right. Up next, we have World's Finest Teen Titans, number two, written by Mark Wade. Emanuela Lupacchino is the artist. Jordi Blair on colors. Steve Wands on letters. So, again, if you haven't been following along with these World's Finest stories, this is early days of the Teen Titans, but at, like said in modern times. Like if the Teen Titans formed when there was social media and cell phones and all that sort of thing. So you get some interesting dynamics with drones and social media and influencers and uh, Arsenal or Roy Harper in uh, Speedy, I guess he would be in this iteration. Uh, you know, he, he wants to reach out. And he, he's, he's missing that something. He doesn't get enough sort of positive affirmation from his uh, mentor or his adopted father, Oliver Queen. So he goes looking for it on social media and what have you. That puts him at odds with Dick Grayson, which again, that's an interesting character dynamic that's being introduced here. Uh, by Mark Wade with a modern twist. So it works on a lot of levels. Um, the art by Lupacchino is fantastic. A little bit of throwback, and it's fun to see these characters where we kind of know their, where their journey is going to take them. Characters like Donna Troy, um, Mal, Duncan, Bumblebee, um, Garth, uh, 
uh, Aqualad. It's fun to see them in these early times interacting with each other because we know, I mean, there's so much dysfunction because they're teenagers and they're still trying to figure out who they're going to be and who they are. And, you know, they want the approval of their uh, hero mentors and that sort of thing. And, you know, you juxtapose that against uh, what's going on in uh, Tom Taylor's Teen Titans right now where there's such a close-knit group. They've been through so much together. It's just such an interesting dynamic. And so that, that for me, is what I'm enjoying the most because, again, Mark Waite knows his DC history. He's going back. He's bringing a new set of eyes to it, a fresh look, but he's still honoring what came before. There's still that interesting dynamic of, you know, teenage angst and whatnot. And it sort of feels like, and this isn't a knock against it at all, but it sort of feels like whatever the adventure of the week is, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't really matter because the the importance of this story and the context of the story for me is the relationships between the Teen Titans themselves. Now, that being said, when they're faced with a, a challenge in this particular issue, it's a, a girl whose superpowers have manifested. Initially, she's able to read other people's thoughts, and then the following day she's broadcasting her thoughts um, involuntarily, like every thought, every deep, dark secret, every insecurity. Like just imagine if everything in your head at any time was just broadcast out for the, your entire high school, um, you know, to hear, you know, if you're walking by somebody, you're like, I really didn't like that person. Or you're walking by, you know, another girl. Oh, she's so cute. I really want to go out with her. I wish I could kiss her whatever. Like how embarrassing, especially when you're at that insecure high school age, trying to figure yourself out, bodies going through all kinds of weird changes, hormones going crazy. Like that would be awful. Right. And so that's what happens to this girl. So you can completely understand what she's going through. And in a way, it's sort of an analog for what the Titans themselves are through. And it's Garth that reaches out and comforts her and talks about the you know, insecurities that he had. And this guy's a superhero, right? So again, Mark Wade, he's introducing these conflicts and it, it's a chance to have those conflicts, conflicts reflected in who the Titans are themselves and to give more character context and more character growth and evolution and understanding of those characters in the way that they deal with whatever the particular problem is. The problem itself is not the important thing, right? Like the important thing wasn't that this girl was uh, powers manifested and how are they going to solve it? No, the important thing was how they handled it and how they reached out to her and how they um, you know, responded to her and, and how they connected to her uh, and the understanding. So uh, this is a really great book. And uh, again, like, I'm so happy Mark Waite's back at DC writing books because it brings so much character and so much story. It's such a great balance of superhero stories. Like if you just want to read this as just a Titan superhero story, like give it to a younger reader. Cause that's the other thing about Mark Waite's books. They are, they do feel so all ages, right. Rather than something that's a bit more mature. Like I certainly wouldn't be giving night terrors to like a 10 year old to read where the guy's cutting his eyelids off. Right. Yeah. But a Mark Wade book, whether it's Shazam or World's Finest or World's Finest Team Titans, you can give that to a 10-year-old. You can give that to an 8-year-old and say, hey, you like superheroes, you like DC, here you go. Uh, and that's something that DC's been missing for a while. So glad to have Mark Wade back uh, doing that for DC. Uh, what were your thoughts about this issue? I really enjoyed the characterization of all the characters here, but in particular uh, Garth, uh, Aqualad, and Donna Troy. And I, I can't help but wonder if it's just a happy coincidence that we, we know that Aqualad, we know that uh, Garth is 
is ultimately with Brother Blood now. He's betrayed the team in Tom Taylor's Teen Titans, in the, in the present day story of Teen Titans. Garth is siding with, I guess, uh, Brother Blood or whatever the hell his name is now. And it's interesting because this gives us a background on Garth. And, and what's uh, this, we're first introduced to Garth and Donna here because they're going on a date. And Garth, Garth is wearing, I mean, Garth is used to living in Atlantis and, and Mark, and he's, he's used to being extremely insecure and he's, he's used to thinking of himself like a freak. By the time you're done reading this issue, all this comes out because Garth reveals his insecurities to this Dallas character, this psychic teenager who's hiding herself off in this house of horrors because she's just, she can't, she can't seem to adapt and she can't get her powers under control. And what I think really hits home here is Donna Troy's character, Donna Troy and Garth are dating and they're, they're not really compatible. And I think this is one of the things that Bumblebee notices and even Mal notices signs of it. I mean, because they go on this date, you know, Donna Troy, and she's, she wants to do everything. She wants to, she wants to, she wants to party. She wants to socialize. She wants to, she wants to see all the sights. She wants the roller coaster. She wants to go and play with children. She wants to, Donna Troy is really, frankly, she's actually a little bit selfish. Maybe I don't want to use the word narcissistic because that's overused. I don't. That's not Donna Troy. But she's thinking really more about herself, about wanting to impress Garth and about wanting to have fun and, and just doing things that she wants to do. And by the end of this, when you 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 see that Garth himself in his conversation with Dallasy at the end, when he's trying to reach this teenager who's afraid and scared, he's telling her that you know I used to have he, he used to Garth used to be his, the worst critic. He was he was most critical of himself. He thought of himself like a freak. Uh, he was. He was because he was from Atlantis, and he that's one of the reasons why he likes wearing bright colors. I mean, my god, he's wearing pink pants on the date here. And so, one of the things that stands out about Garth is Garth isn't afraid to be himself. Garth is, and he's he's come a long way. He even says that at the end that it took a long time for him to realize that he was okay. That, that he wasn't a freak, that he's a good person. And he's much more comfortable with himself than Donna Troy is. And there's this fantastic scene uh, at the end where Donna Troy is uh, at the end where where Garth decides to stay and help Dallasie out. And Donna Troy just sort of looks, looks on and... Bumblebee asks Donna if she's okay. And it's clear that Donna, I don't know what Donna's thinking, but I'm guessing she's thinking that she never even saw that side of Garth because she was too blinded by her own sort of selfishness. Hello. Good night. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought the character work here was excellent. And I think it's going to play, it might play in very well with Tom Taylor's, uh, uh, you know, who knows Tom Taylor's exploration and character work for Garth in the mainstream Teen Titans uh, storyline. Who knows? But regardless, the character work's fantastic. Emanuela Lapacchino's art absolutely i think is perfectly fitting for the era and i i was really impressed with this and this was a house of horrors in this issue and this to me felt like a superior night terror the true night terrors <laughs> but in the past but it was very well done yeah i agree it worked on so many different levels um yeah just a, f a fantastic issue so uh, all right. Well, last book we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to let you go first because it sounded like you really enjoyed it. It's the Superman 2023 Annual Number 1 uh, from writer Joshua Williamson. Tons of artists on here. We have Mahmoud Azrar, Edwin Galmon, Caitlin Yarsky, Max Rayner, and Jack Herbert. Colors by Dave McCaig, Edwin Galmon, and Alex Guermas. And then letters by Ariana Mayer. 
Uh, give us your thoughts on this one. Well, uh, I guess the first thing I want to say is I, I love there is a double page spread about three uh, three pages in uh, that have the heads on the sides of the panels. I absolutely love that. I've always loved that. I love that. It was a it, it was often commonly used in pages of the Superman family and whatever it is, I like that. You know, we're, we're, we're privy to a staff meeting at the Daily Planet and Lois Lane is giving all of her reporters a mission, giving them assignments as to what they got to do. And she's... And by doing that, the entire issue is structured around that. Joshua Williamson does a really good job here structuring the issue uh, around the assignments that Lois Lane gives her various reporters. And, and, and the highlights of the issue, I mean, there's multiple highlights, is that, you know, uh, Lois Lane ends up herself having to interview Livewire in prison where she encounters uh, – the Red Cloud, the character, the old villain from Brian Bendis's old villain, the Red Cloud, uh, who is quickly rele- relegated to insignificancy thanks to Livewire. Uh, we get Cat Grant riding along with the new Chief Kakoa, uh, the police commissioner, where she encounters uh, Marilyn Moon Knight and ends up getting a scoop and interviewing Marilyn Moon Knight. And we also get Jimmy Olsen and is sent to Supercore to in, in her, to look at Supercore, do a tour of Supercore and be interviewed by uh, and and to find out information and keep an eye on Mercy Graves and meanwhile Superman is stopping the toy man throughout the issue and Superman is really almost like a He's like a corollary. He's like a corollary character in this issue. He's he, he doesn't really do all that much. He just uh, we know that Toy Man's toys are causing havoc in the city, and Superman finds Toy Man. But it, it looks like somebody has manipulated the Toy Man and has somehow allowed a bunch of children playing video games to actually manipulate Toy Man's toys. So somebody really did did a piece, really worked up Toy Man, and it's it we discover that it was actually uh, Dr. Farm and Mr. Graft who used Toy Man uh, in order to create in order to create a distraction for Superman while they utilized some of his tech to create a special type of syringe from Toy Man tech so they, they could penetrate the skin of Lobo of all people so that they can get Lobo's blood and and analyze it only to set off alarms because there's trackers in Lobo's blood which which attract the attention of none other than Brainiac himself who has the lost city of Zarnia. So we all know that Lobo is the sole survivor of Zarnia. Lobo himself thinks that he killed and wiped out his entire planet because he killed all his planet. But in fact, before Zarnia was destroyed, apparently Brainiac you know, shrunk one of this, the, this shrunk the city of Zarnia and he's got it. And, uh, apparently, uh, Brainiac now wants to embark on a mission to ensure that he is not the sole Kaluan in the galaxy. So, so he, he doesn't want to be alone in the universe anymore. And somehow this is all tied in with Lobo's blood in the lost city of Zarnia. And, so much happens here. So much great character work. Uh, my, I, I particularly liked uh, Catherine Grant. Catherine Grant was given the the assignment to uh, speak to to essentially ride along with Chief uh, Kakoa, and and she ends up talking to Marilyn Moon Knight, 
talking about how, you know, Marilyn Moon Knight gives us some hints as to her past because Marilyn Moon Knight was never comfortable in Metropolis. She never really felt safe in Metropolis is what Marilyn Moon Knight said. And then Cat Grant shares, of course, that she herself, Catherine Grant lost her son, died at the hands of a toy man. So Catherine Grant knows what it's like to blame a city for have for a profound loss. And so really good character work there. Uh, you know, the, the dialogue was great. The art was fantastic. We got multiple artists here from Mahmoud Ajar. Azrar, Edward Galmon, uh, Caitlin Yarsky, and Max Rayner, and Jack Herbert. And and what's great about it is the individual assignments that it shows these reporters going to, uh, including Jimmy at Supercore, we got a different artist for all of it. And it works, it just works really, really well. There's some great uh, visual homages to uh, Christopher Reeve. Uh, Chris, and just, I mean... Uh, a great action sequence between Livewire and the Red Cloud. Uh, the Red Cloud. It was a nice, nice, nice of Williamson to, to, to tribute one of Venice's characters, the Red Cloud. Uh, where she was uh, part of that invisible, invisible mafia. Hated Lois Lane. Great battle between Livewire and Red Cloud. I thought that was well done. That was in the prison. And uh, again, there's a, this felt like a, a regular issue of Superman to me. This, this is what I think annuals should be. I, I like this that they actually tie in specifically to the ongoing story, and this works really well. There are other moments here, fantastically drawn. This w with Danger Street, it was between this and Danger Street for my pick of the week. I won't say which one I picked until we get to the end, but I really, really love this Joshua Williamson man, a spectacular job, and uh, we got an interesting little twist on Parasite. But maybe I'll let you talk about that if. Uh, if you're so inclined. So what do you think of the issue? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Um, yeah. Parasite, he finds out that he didn't absorb all the little pieces of himself that we saw in the second issue. Um, we know he, he was charged up by uh, Dr. Pharma and Graft and started absorbing all the energy in Metropolis, including people's life energy. And people were sort of turning into zombies and it was a big, uh, it was a big deal. So, yeah, I mean, this was really great. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, Joshua Williamson, like you said, is, is doing a great job. It's funny you mentioned, okay, this is what a Superman issue feels like. This is what the Superman books used to feel like back in the days of the Triangle era, right? Where you had a big supporting cast and you had a lot of things going on and you only had to wait a week between issues. Um, and, yeah, that's what, that's what this – stuff used to feel like. And it's been a long time since it's felt like that. First of all, you don't have, you know, Superman books coming out every week anymore. Um, or if you do, some of them are limited series and they don't tie in together and that sort of thing. So yeah, it, it, and you're right to make uh, the comparison to Danger Street as well, because just like Danger Street, uh, where there's a lot going on, all the stories, everything jumping around, you have to have read what's come before. This felt the same way, right? There's a part of me that says, well, it's an annual. It should be new reader friendly. It's, you know, 30, six pages or whatever. So sometimes you're going to have, you know, new people that jump on and people are less inclined to jump on in the middle of something, you know, like they used to back in the day. That being said, you know, that's, that's just, it's just not always feasible to do it that way. Would I like it if this was a little more new reader friendly? Well, yeah, of course I would. But, but again, that's not always feasible. So I thought this was fantastic. It was a ton of fun. I had a hard time uh, picking what was my favorite, you know, I really enjoyed seeing Lois sort of team up with Livewire. I think Livewire is an underutilized character. I hope that uh, Joshua Williamson uses uh, 
uses her a bit more going forward. It seems like maybe that's going to be the case. You and I both love the idea of Jimmy and Silver Banshee um, dating. I talked to Josh uh, about that at San Diego Comic-Con. He loves that relationship as well. We're going to get more of that. Uh, so looking forward to that. That's mentioned here, if not specifically called out. Marilyn, Marilyn Moonlight. I think you were saying Moon Knight, but it's Moonlight. Moonlight. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, she's a fantastic character. Great visual from Jamal Campbell. Uh, he doesn't draw her here, but he, he did the design. Um, it's Jack Herbert who does those pages. I, I recognize his style anywhere. That those, I mean, the art is fantastic throughout. But if I had to pick, you know, some specific pages that I love the most, it is those Marilyn Moonlight pages with Cat Grant, because I just love Jack Herbert's art. His art is just so fantastic. So th- that's great as well. So there, there's just so much to like here. You know, I can point to any number of things that I that I absolutely loved. Um, there's just so much. There's just so much. That, and I, I want to add, we have to add that Perry White is running for mayor and Lois Lane discovers that Perry White buried a lot of the stories that uh, Perry White was well aware that Lex Luthor was, in fact, a hero in the early in his early years in Metropolis. But Perry White buried all those stories that would have made Lex Luthor uh, portrayed as a hero. So why did Perry White uh, what deal did Perry have with Barry with uh, did Perry White have with Lex Luthor? Why did he bury those stories? So it's more interesting questions, more intrigue. And is it related? Uh, will it come back to haunt Perry, right? Perry White now that he's running for mayor? So uh, it's it's interesting. Yeah, there's so much, again, there's so much to love in this issue. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't, it's been, I, I, th- I think I've said this many times in the recent past. I can't remember the last time I enjoyed um like on this level, like just every one of them is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, so yeah, really, really enjoying it. So uh, let me pull up the uh, collected editions, let you guys all know what you need to be on the lookout for this week in terms of uh, collected editions from DC. Uh, there's uh, quite a few of them out this week. So let me just get it in front of me. Let's see. And then hardcovers and trade paperbacks. All right. So, we have Batman Volume 3 Ghost Stories, uh, and that's collecting Batman uh, 101 through 105 and uh, Detective 1027 and Batman Annual 5. So those are all uh, James Tynan stories, Ian March on the art. We've got Batman Wayne Family Adventures Volume 1 in print. That's the Webtoons series. Uh, we've got Batman Detective Comics by Peter J. Tomasi, Omnibus hardcover, that's the uh, run he started with Brad Walker on art. Lazarus Planet hardcover, which collects the Lazarus Planet uh, Alpha and Omega issues, as well as all the one-shots and anthologies. Uh, Your mileage may vary, but I would say you can probably skip that. was not the best event. And then we've got uh, Vixen NYC Volume 1 paperback, um, which uh, is also uh, a webtoon for DC Comics, which collects the uh, first nine digital uh, issues of that. So uh, not, not heavy on Batman in the uh, hardcovers this week for once, uh, but there's some good stuff for sure. Uh, all right, Rocky, moment of truth. What is your book of the week? Uh, well, I am... I I could cheat because one story is sort of out of continuity and one, one isn't. I I love Superman. I, I really do. I'm 
I don't even know if it's legal for us to do a tie for pick of the week because Danger Street and Superman, I really absolutely loved both of them. I, I It's a really, really hard choice for me. I It's really hard, but I... Um, I, I think because you're probably going to, I hope you pick Superman because uh, I'll pick Danger Street hoping you'll pick Superman. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to pick Superman annual as well. Uh, there was no <laughs> doubt for me. Uh, Danger Street was really, really good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, Superman, he's my favorite. He's my favorite character. So yeah. uh, even if you pick Superman annual, I was going to pick it too. But I mean, it barely, it barely ekes out, right? Like, so say, say Superman annual, like on a scale of one to 10, I give it a nine and a half. It's nearly a perfect comic. Yeah. Uh, I give Danger Street like a nine. I mean, or nine and a quarter even. Like it's really yeah. close. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're both really deserving. And uh, yeah, again, Night Terrors might not always be, you know, doing it for us in terms of hey, we just absolutely love it. But yeah, DC is firing on a lot of cylinders on um, on plenty of their other books. Um, so yeah, good job, DC. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anything else? Anything coming up? Anything you want to tease? Uh, no, not in particular. I just um, I'm just too busy, too busy at work. So I'll just uh, it's hard enough for me to catch up on this DC stuff. And uh, but I'm I'm looking forward to the end of Night Terrors. So uh, that, that's what I'm looking forward to. But what about you? You got any interviews coming up or anything like that? Because I know I've been listening to your interviews from uh, out of San Diego Comic Con. There's because uh, I listened to the Jay Ma- Jay Mateus one. Uh, just yeah, to- I had JM on and uh, and Todd Knock. Really encourage you guys to go and check that one out, especially if you're fans of uh, Magneto. Which you know, who's not? Who doesn't love Magneto? Uh, he's such a fascinating character, and um, those guys really enjoy Magneto. They're as much fans as they are, uh, you know, creators, especially Todd Knock and that that era of New Mutants when uh, Magneto was training the New Mutants when Charles. I can't remember where he was at that point. He was off in space with Lilandra, um, getting his legs fixed for the millionth time. Um, and Magneto was trying to be a good guy. So, uh, yeah, I had them on to talk about it. They were really excited. It, it's really interesting if you haven't read that first issue of Magneto. That they go back to the earliest appearance of Magneto in X-Men number one and, and shed some light on some things Magneto's doing that gives some context to the character that have never been there before, which is just super fascinating to me. Um, so yeah, I encourage you guys to all go and listen to that. Uh, and then, yeah, I had Joanne Starrer on, uh, at San Diego comic-con to talk about her fu- upcoming fire and ice series. That's uh, super exciting. So that was great. Also talked to her and her, uh, I, I don't know if they're married, but anyway, her, her boyfriend or her partner, uh, Kari Randolph, uh, who a lot of people know from his artwork on excellence. Well, they have a series called sirens of the city from boom that's set in 1980s, New York city. And it's just, yeah, it's fantastic. Some of the best work I've ever seen Kari do. It's black and white art with splashes of color. It's super, uh, super uh, detailed and impactful and what have you. So, yeah, so tons of interviews from San Diego. They're all out now, uh, as well as, like uh, like you said, the one I did with, with JM and Todd. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, I have more stuff coming. Um, there's some creator-owned spotlights that should be out coming out this week followed by more creator own spotlights next week and then just following up with other people. So yeah, we'll have some big names on uh, coming up here in uh, in the next little while. And the other thing that I want to mention, if you go to the LRM website, the pop culture site that I'm affiliated with, lrmonline.com, go to the comic source section or you can just type in LRM 
online.com forward slash comic source. That's where all the web pages are uh, for all of the episodes, but there's also articles there as well. There's one article I wrote recently on The Cull, C-U-L-L, which is a new series that's coming from Image on August 16th, uh, so in a little over a week. It's written by Kelly Thompson. It's yeah. I've only read the first issue, but the art by Matea D. Luis is amazing, gorgeous. I can't give enough superlatives. One of my favorite things that Kelly's ever done. It is so good. You do not want to miss this series. I could see this being the next Something is Killing the Children, right? So it's too late to uh, pre-order in terms of getting ahead of FOC, but you need to let your – it comes out next week. You go to your comic shop this week, you better tell your retailer, hey, uh, I need a copy of this because it's that good. But if you go to that website and go to that article, you literally can go and see a timeline that I created with everything we know about the series so far, every bit of teaser art, there's a trailer on there. You can see uh, Matthias art where he uh, digitally painted things on YouTube, see how amazing his artwork is. Uh, it's like, I cannot rec- recommend this series highly enough. If I only got to read one comic for the rest of the year, it would be this comic. That's how excited I am about wow. it. So go and check it out. It's called The Cull. I'm super excited about it. I want to get as many people reading it as possible. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be up there with like no one in World Tree for me uh, because it's it's just that good. So uh, be sure and, and check that out. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for joining. As always, don't forget to head over to YouTube if you're listening to the audio only. Subscribe to Rocky's channel. Do a search for Comic Space Boom exclamation point. Ring the notification bell. Leave comments. We love to see comments and start discussions in the the comment section. Uh, but subscribe so you don't miss any of the other content. Uh, that comes out. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube or you stumbled across us on YouTube and you want to listen to those other interviews uh, from San Diego Comic-Con and other past interviews and future interviews uh, on the podcast uh, audio only, just go to wherever you get your podcasts and do a search for the comic source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. We appreciate you joining us as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.